Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Luminos. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, co-pilot, co-podcaster, Jason Snow. Hello! You know, the um, the uh, pilot of the space shuttle didn't actually fly the space shuttle. Well, you know, what can you do? Pod- okay. Podcasts are comp- just as complicated as space shuttles. Yeah, sure. It is. Pretty much. There's a lot of buttons to push, I can tell you that. <laughs> a lot of buttons. There's buttons. Uh, you're communicating uh, with somebody who you can't see. Uh-huh. Uh, I will say, if we mess this up, I don't think either of us would be killed. So I guess that's an upside. One of us could be in space right now, but probably not. I mean, I don't, I don't, Skype barely works across the country. <laughs> mm. Quite honestly, this <laughs> I don't think is it's going to work to low. This is true. Earth orbit. So we got, um, we got a, we got a grab bag in this episode. We do. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some stuff, a little, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, but we're going to start with our pre-flight checklist. This item, I actually don't know why this item is here and not really a mini topic, but... It's, it's because it's well, not a main topic. Well, because you showed restraint, I'll say, because you could have easily just made this a topic and I could have uh, sat back and listened to you talk about it for like half an hour. Yeah, so I'm I'm super into reprints of old books, especially like yeah. technical mm-hmm. space books. We spoke mm-hmm. really early on in this show about... The NASA standards guide is when you and I argued about which NASA logo is better. Right. One day you'll come you'll come to your senses. The meatball. <laughs> there's another project. Uh, it's got the Apollo 11 flight plan. And there's a link to it on Kickstarter, really detail-oriented in the way that it's put together. And it's basically a page-by-page lesson, I guess, if you will, or, or a plan for the Apollo 11 flight. You really love those uh, ring binders too, don't do. you? And this is a four four ringed binder. All, all the great binders. Uh, the Kickstarter actually just ended uh, just uh, about a day ago. So ah, yes. hopefully you got in. They raised three hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more. It's pretty pretty successful. Uh, so it's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing getting that. It'll go on the shelf next to the uh, the NASA logo one. Uh, up next, we're talking about uh, SpaceX. We spoke, of course, last time about NASA's mission to Mars and that SpaceX may actually beat them there. I think we may have put some money on that. Uh, and even just in the past week or past couple weeks, SpaceX has been putting things in order for that. So they are testing their their next. Uh, engine that will be used uh, to go to Mars called the Raptor. So it's bigger and beefier than the Merlin engines that are used now in the Falcon 9. Maybe up to three times as powerful. They're not really saying where it kind of lands on the spectrum. But this will, would go on the that next generation of rocket that you were talking about, Jason, that they're going to announce uh, potentially in Mexico here in a couple weeks. We get so focused on like... Um rockets and not on the engines but the engines are a, are a big part of uh of it and you know we just sort of think of them as the things that are down at the bottom of the of the rocket but it is an important part of the of the of of the engineering of the rocket and the idea here is that these are more powerful engines than the merlins that they currently use on the falcon 9 so um all part of that kind of improvement and iteration that uh, SpaceX seems to be going for as it tries to gear up to list, lift heavier stuff and also potentially uh, shoot stuff out to Mars. It's cool stuff. So that, that's going to be uh, tested in Texas. Uh, SpaceX has some facilities there and uh, it's another milestone on the way to Mars. That's fun. That, that you get all that fun video of like a, a rocket on its side yeah. blasting <laughs> flames in Texas. It's like uh, you don't want to cook hot dogs on the back of that. You want to be far away 
<laughs> you'd lose. Yeah, you'd lose your hot dogs <laughs> there. Gone. Uh, so, Jason, for, for what's, sure. what's up with Moon Express? Uh, Moon Express is a private company, and this happened a couple weeks ago. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes to a story on the Verge by Lauren Grush about it. Um, it, it so. It wants to go to the moon because it wants to win, not because it is there, <laughs> but because it is hard. No, sorry. Because it is going to give them money because they're going to win the Lunar X Prize, basically. Um, by landing a, a thing on the moon in 2017, they win the Lunar X Prize. They get money. Um, that's not the reason the company exists, but they would like the money. Um, and the problem is there are regula- regulatory issues with commercial spaceflight and landing on the moon is even more kind of like of an issue so it turns out the the way lauren grush reports it is no regulatory framework exists for commercial space missions to other worlds and this is going to come up again if spacex does this it's like there's a treaty that was signed in the 60s i want to say that basically says um because you're you're thinking to yourself well what is it who who has authority over uh, whether somebody goes to the moon or not, there's no moon government, right? <laughs> who, who, who says who says that? And th- according to the treaty, where you launch your stuff, that government is responsible for you, and and needs to give approval. So it sounds like they have to work through some more um, some some more broad regulations about stuff like this to create a real approval process in the United States for uh, trips to other planets and moons and things. But in the meantime, and they may use what what Moon Express did as a f- uh, framework, but in the meantime, Moon Express came up with its own sort of patch to the regulations and, and said, <laughs> I, I keep envisioning, like, handed some, some papers to the government and said, just sign this. It's fine. Let's just move on. Let's make this happen. And uh, so that's essentially what happened is that, that the government approved this uh, attempt to land a little rover or a little uh, it's not even a rover. I think it's just a little guy on the moon, uh, private company landing something on the moon. Great. Um, they want to be able to. Uh, you know, potentially bring stuff back. Uh, we know that uh, President Obama signed a, a, a bill into law that that um, allows uh, you to keep what you find in space, essentially. If you can bring it back to Earth, it belongs to you. So it's an interesting place where a lot of these regulations are not up to speed with what is suddenly becoming a, a, a reality in the near future. Right. So, uh, so they have come up with this patch to the regulations that allows them to go there. They had to get it approved by the FAA, by the State Department, by the White House. But uh, they're hoping that maybe they can use it as a as a basis for some of this. There's a congressman from Oklahoma who has uh, has proposed a bill that actually incorporates the the work that Moon Express did to get their thing approved. So it may be the start of a framework work for that but it will be very important for um for companies like spacex anybody who wants to do um asteroid mining there are lots of different aspects of this where uh based on the existing treaty um that that the u.s space industry has to work with the u.s government to get a framework for this because the treaty says they have to Uh, otherwise there's i don't know chaos and and madness in space and we don't want space madness so 
Uh, so it's interesting because it also just, I mean, leaving everything else aside, Moon Express is a company that is going to get to the moon next year. That's their goal. And they've got a, they got a ride for their, for their lander on an Electron rocket, which is a, a, another commercial spaceflight entity, um, Rocket Lab. And uh, so it's all, <laughs> we'll see if they can pull it off. But if they do, if they land a, a, a commercial lander on the surface of the moon they will win the uh, they will win the lunar x prize so they'll get some money from google basically so we're going to now turn to venus there was a report out that at one point it is now thought that venus may have been habitable of course now it's a um hot hellacious fireball of a planet <laughs> yeah it's a hell it's a hellhole yeah it's terrible but, it, but it's thought that at some point uh venus may have had a liquid ocean and at this time, we're talking billions of years ago, it would have actually been colder than the Earth because the sun, if you remember from our, our sun episodes, uh, ha- has been and continues to expand. So the sun would have been smaller and dimmer. Yeah, it gets brighter and hotter as it goes. And so back uh, when this would have happened, it would have actually been uh, a mu- much dimmer. So they had to do this whole model, right? So they had to do what, what's the insulation, uh, insulation, you know, how much, how much energy is coming from the sun. And it's a lot, but, uh, but less th- than you'd think because it would have been earlier in the sun's life. Um, and they think that there could have been as much as 2 billion years where it was habitable. Uh, Venus was with a, with a shallow ocean, habitable temperatures. It might've been a little bit cooler than the earth is today. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is you start to think, could there have been life on Venus? If, if One of the great questions in so much space exploration is, when did life emerge? And uh, there continue to be fossil, fossil discoveries on Earth and the oldest rocks on Earth that suggest that life emerged here basically as early as it could have. And if that's true, that, you know, people have to ask the question, under certain circumstances, is life almost inevitable that it's going to emerge instead of it being an incredibly rare thing, which is another possibility is like you could have a million Earth-like worlds and no life would ever emerge on them. The the, the earlier life emerged on the Earth, the more uh, scientists think that it's probably more likely that life is kind of an inevitable outcome of these conditions because uh, they, it happens so fast. If it didn't take four billion years for it to take, and this is not complex life, but it's life as we define it. So it's a question with Venus. Now, the problem is Venus has been baked for so long since then that we may, ne- and it's so inhospitable, we may never be able to really investigate any possible evidence that it harbored life at some point. But it is interesting when we think about exoplanets, when we think about uh, habitability areas of stars, um, and when we think about something we've talked about, the, the fact that the solar system is a dynamic system. It's not, we think of it as static because our lifespans are relatively short, but um, in the long term, nothing stays the same. Like the, 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 all the planets are, and, uh, and the moon, you know, it, the system keeps evolving. And it's interesting to think about winding it back. You could, you could sit at a point where for 2 billion years, a huge amount of time, Venus was a completely habitable planet. And then bad stuff happened, and it, it became the hellhole that it is today. 
And this is with 117 Earth Day. I mean, it, it takes so long for a day on Venus. And they actually factored that in, which was really interesting, that the sun shining on one side for 117 days, they figured would bring uh, up an upwelling of clouds and there'd be a cloud layer. And that would actually make the planet cooler because it would reflect a lot of the solar radiation off the white clouds that were that were on the on the sun side. So it's an, it's an interesting study. Um, nobody really knows. You know, you, you, you're plugging data into supercomputers and making some suppositions and trying to make a guess but it's a cool idea and this story is fun because they have a one of those uh, terrain maps that they do to make it look like what what the what the uh, land masses and oceans of venus would look, look have looked like at that point so it's like it's a new planet that you know what was what is not no longer <laughs> and it's fun to think about venus in a different light right i mean we both made the joke immediately about how hot and, and hospitable it is but again like you said our lifespans are short and in the the clockwork of the solar system, uh, you wind it back, Venus could have been a very different place. And I just I find that really fascinating to think about. We might be on a map of like some alien exploration culture that passed through here billions of years ago and was like, yeah, OK, so this this system has a really nice habitable planet at number two. Yeah. Uh, so visit that next in a few billion years when you come back and they, they'll come back and they'll be like what happened what the heck is surprise well we'll go to number three instead maybe <laughs> destroy earth no they're not going to do that uh anyway so I, that's a cool story it's not really news but uh, you know the study is news but you know venus has been dead for a long time now <laughs> sorry venus uh, so nasa has a an upcoming mission uh osiris rex it's a it's a probe um that is designed to carry samples from an asteroid back to the Earth. This thing is supposed to launch here in about a month on September 8th is the current scheduled launch. And it will, by 2018, approach a primitive near-Earth asteroid designated, you ready, 1999 RQ-36. Well, tonight we're going to party like it's 1999 RQ-36. I'll tell you that right now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You, you had a lot of tea before we recorded this, didn't you? Hmm. You have no idea. <laughs> so how this, how this will work, the probe will approach the asteroid and for six months will circle it closely and provide comprehensive surface mapping. And with those maps, the team will pick a location and the spacecraft will move closer with a robotic arm and basically just roll down the window and take a chunk of the asteroid and will bring it back to Earth around 2023. We're not talking about a lot of material. We're talking in ounces, right? It's not a lot of material. But the first time we've had material from someplace other than the moon you know, sampled and returned to Earth. which it's, it's very rare that we've... Because it's very expensive to send something out and then bring it back and then land it. Clearly, this has... You know, there are echoes of this in that mission to Mars we're going to talk about bringing a asteroid into orbit around the moon and then sending crews to it to sample it's kind of the uh, first step towards that but i also want to bring it up because we've been talking about united launch alliance a little bit more and uh there's a picture in the show notes uh space flight now of the way this rocket will look it's an atlas 5 which again is their their workhorse model but they're flying it in the what they call the 411 configuration which basically is the main rocket and then a single solid uh than a single solid rocket booster on the side. And it looks very unusual. You know, we're used to seeing these things as really, like, you know, uh, symmetrical vehicles, and this thing just has a solid rocket booster taped to the side. Kind of fun um, if you're into uh, uh, flight hardware, but um, 
again, trying to talk more about ULA a little bit because I think they're, they are doing more than just sending top secret spy satellites with scary patches uh, to circle the Earth. So they're helping NASA get science done in this mission. This episode, as, as so many of these episodes have been, brought to you by Luminos. Luminos is an app that combines the most advanced astronomy features on mobile with the careful craftsmanship you would expect from the best iOS apps. Now, if you're a serious astronomer, and I'm sure we've got some very serious astronomers who listen to this podcast just to laugh at us, uh, and you want to study the largest catalog of stars and deep space images on mobile, yeah, Luminos has the tools you need. Now, if you're a casual astronomy enthusiast like us who wants to fly to a faraway comet, not returning samples perhaps, land on a moon, any moon, a drafted moon, an undrafted moon, uh, or simulate a solar eclipse, Luminos makes exploring space fun. Meteor showers, satellites, telescope mount control. We just had the Perseid meteor shower. That's a great example of that. Um, All of this stuff is included in one single integrated app, all that stuff in the single app. Luminos is built on an advanced simulation engine more than 10 years in the making. It's continually optimized for the newest features of iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch. And best of all, Luminos includes everything for a single price. There's no in-app purchase, no annoying ads. You buy the app, and then they do the updates, and you you buy it once, and that's all. You're, you're, you're never nickel and dimed for more stuff. It's just you buy it, and you got it. Wobbleworks is the uh, maker of Luminos. They have a tradition of Free feature updates, and they're announcing version 9.1, an update that adds beautiful translucent terrain, multiple sky orientations, an amazing model of Comet 67P, a theoretical position for Planet 9. Ooh, Planet 9. I can't wait for this update. And much more. So find videos, screenshots, and more details by going to wobbleworks.com or find Luminos on the App Store. Thank you to Luminos for sponsoring Liftoff. So we got one more sort of mini topic before we get into the 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 big one. Again, going back to the mission to Mars, it's funny how a lot of this ties back to that. Uh, part of that mission is the deep space habitat, right? Having crews beyond low Earth orbit in hardware that can sustain you know, crews of three or four people for extended periods of time. So we have the International Space Station that's obviously doing that, but going a step further. Uh, into cislunar space, and then obviously eventually beyond. And this week, NASA announced its partners for these habitats. Um, and it's a lot of names that we'd recommend, that, you know, that we would recognize, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Orbital ATK, um, uh, Bigelow, your favorite. Bigelow, yes. You're always a favorite. Uh, with they want to build inf- a giant inflatable thing. <laughs> That's right. Um, then you also have companies like Sierra Nevada, which we haven't really spoken about, but they're also in this commercial f- uh, flight space and then nano racks and <clears throat> it's interesting nasa is basically using these firms to do different things so some are building habitat habitation modules uh, obviously um the inflatable route is already sort of happening at the international space station others are focusing on communication infrastructure propulsion sur- you know deep space survival radiation protection and that sort of thing so you know we spoke saying you know this this part of this mission really it's one of those areas that maybe is a little hand wavy. Well, it looks like it's starting to get maybe a little less hand wavy as uh, as time moves on. Yeah, the NanoRacks one is really interesting, and perhaps down the road we'll go into some of these in more detail. That would be a fun episode. But the NanoRacks, uh, they're they're doing a feasibility study, and this is the idea: is once you've got an upper stage of of the launch vehicle, and you've and you've exhausted all the propellant, right? The upper stage comes with you to space. 
and then you eject it and it and it burns up in the atmosphere is generally how that was nanoracks is going to do a feasibility study about if the upper stage can be turned into a pressurized habitable volume for use in space the idea there is you bring your house with you but it starts out filled with fuel and then once it's done as being a fuel tank you convert it on the fly in space into uh, a place where people can live uh, for a long duration space flight because one of the challenges for long duration space flight is how do you get the volume for them to be in like and that's why um uh, bigelow is going to do a 330 cubic meter expandable habitat um that they're that they want to attach to the international space station is like how do you how do you get more space for somebody who's going to mars or an asteroid something where it's a long duration flight and they're not going to want to be in a very tiny enclosed space for months at a time but the nanorex one i, I just it struck me as being really interesting because they're they're it, it's what if you bring you know what if you bring it with you you just reuse the rocket you already brought with you which i don't know if that's plausible or not i guess you would need a comprehensive feasibility study for that which they're going to provide uh, the insight there, I think, and as is hoping, could be applicable to any rocket system, including the SLS. So, you know, having not maybe not so much about a particular set of hardware yet, but just does this idea make sense? Is something we can use because any any part of your transit system that you're going to use, you have to get off the ground. And so, if you can have something that plays double duty as a fuel tank or as an upper stage, and then you convert it, that's a lot less weight that you have to carry and you can use that for you know things like supplies or um, fuel and the, these other things that you're going to need and not so much you know a bunch of empty space that will be you know used for for crew sleeping and that sort of thing right yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm it's fun because this is this is a uh, this is also NASA sending a mission saying yes we are working on this this is something we brought up as a missing piece right of like well okay what are they going to use for the habitat when they go to Mars because that's been a big question mark so this is um, in some ways an answer to that and saying we're working on it we've got uh, we've got these different partners that we're working with to figure out aspects of this yep. And I will point out, I sort of chuckled when I saw the acronym for this as being Next Step, which yeah, uh, I know. The Just Apple capitalize the will... X, and yeah. it, you got the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, Apple nerds will will be in on the joke. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the the big thing we want to talk about this week, NASA has been working on its next round of planetary missions. So we we've spoken about this a lot. That you know, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. We have New Horizons. We have uh, things like CINI, we have uh, Juno, but those things, all all these missions have an end date. And there's going to be uh, what it looks like a gap in planetary missions where there's nothing, really Juno was kind of the last big thing that was on its way, right? That there's nothing super near launch at this point of, uh, besides some, I mean, there's Mars stuff going on, but, you know, talking kind of deep solar system activity. And NASA has selected investigations for future key planetary missions in the, in the past couple of weeks. So these are missions that are not done, like they're not they're not locked in. They're not saying all of these are happening, but it is looking at some. I guess the best way to put it is some options and uh, indication is that they that they would pick two uh, off this list to move forward with, um, and that you know the others would would either go away or be postponed, but the two would be blessed to become 
real grown up active missions. Yeah, and then they they actually said that it it um they expect yeah they expect another round in a couple of years or in, even in a year. Um, but if they pick two, then they won't do that. So it's sort of, they're sort of like, they're open to picking two. And if they don't like two of them enough to pick them, then they, they will basically take a new round of applications for the, for the next one. But it's good that they're trying to load things in the pipeline. You know, when we talked to Emily Lactawalla, she pointed out what you just mentioned, which is that there's this gap where there aren't a lot of planetary missions happening and, uh, it's kind of painful so this is they're 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 um spinning up here to get some more of these uh discovery missions which um as emily said they've got specific sort of like budgetary uh limitations they're they're, they're supposed to be not super expensive these aren't like flagship planetary missions these are sort of like the cheaper ones uh to try and get a couple of them going i, I love the actually the attitude that they might just pick two and get them both on the move so we thought we'd walk through these uh the first one is named veritas it's- i I, got, I have an opinion about this so, so Veritas, they're, they're, the names of these things are amazing. Um, this is Venus Emissivity Radio Science Insar Topography and Spectroscopy Mission, which is sort of Veritas if you don't capitalize the S in radio science. Um, you do include the A of and, which is sort of cheating too. There are so many uh, things that, that, that they try to come up with a cool acronym. And my favorite part of this name is that one of the I stands for INSAR, which is itself an acronym for Interferometric Synthetic Aperture Radar. Anyway, names are funny is what I'm saying. So Veritas' objectives are to reveal Venus's geologic history, looking at things like how active it is now, looking for evidence of of past and maybe even present water going back to the top of the show and kind of trying to get to that that big question of how earth-like is stroke was venus yeah so the the idea here is that it's a it's a uh it's a radar um mapper that will orbit venus that's the proposal and uh and produce maps at a level that we don't have of uh of venus's surface by using i mean it's obviously visual visible light you can't see it but there they would be radar maps very high high precision radar maps of venus um and that's that again it's hard to see venus and we haven't sent a lot of different ships to venus little different probes over the years we've talked about that before so that's veritas um is uh, mapping venus so that's on the list despite its silly name veritas on the list there's not many things to start with v so you know you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Just using an acronym inside an acronym. That's not, come on. Uh, another one is called Psyche, uh, which is named, again, probably would have a different name if it comes to pass, but because it's just named for the asteroid 16 Psyche that they want to go to. It's one of the larger asteroids. It is a metallic asteroid, and they want to explore where uh, planetary cores come from. The, the feeling is that uh, the asteroid belt, you can find a lot of evidence of early solar system stuff out there. It's the junk that's kind of scattered around in the solar system. Uh, they think that uh, Psyche is probably the survivor of a collision with another object um, that's very much like, you know, we, we think that a major collision formed uh, the moon uh, out of the Earth. Uh, so so they, they think perhaps they will get some... Uh, understanding of of uh what we might get 
when a planetary core, what, you know, what's it in a planetary core? Where do they come from, from seeing this, uh, this object that is the survivor of a, a collision with something somewhere. Uh, and, uh, so Psyche right now is the name of the spacecraft and it's also the name of the big metal asteroid that's out there, uh, that it would explore. So we'd probably get another name cause Psyche going to Psyche. Yeah. Mm. But it is, uh, the most massive metallic M-type asteroid out there and one of the 10 most massive asteroids. So it's a, it's a big one. Up next, we have NeoCam, which would focus on near earth objects, and the, the thought is that it could discover 10 times more of these objects than we know about now. And it would also begin to characterize them. So these near-Earth objects are classified in a bunch of different ways. You have you have size. Some of the, the classification is around location. And this would basically give scientists uh, a better view into these things that are, are really close to us in the solar system. You know, this one is not going out very far, uh, kind of a little bit closer to the neighborhood. Yeah, and it's important for us to know about near-Earth objects, not only because we like to learn things, but also because they are the, the objects that are near us are the objects that are more, most likely to uh, hit us. And that's not great. So it's good to, uh, it's good to keep an eye on what's in the neighborhood. Um, da Vinci. Okay. Okay, bear with me here, because this is the backronyms. Oh, the backronyms are strong with this one. Um, da Vinci is Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging. And of course, they don't capitalize the things that they don't want to capitalize to get Da Vinci out of that. Um, but it is a, um, it is really cool, though, Da Vinci. It's a uh, it's a Mars lander, essentially, although more accurately, it would sort of be, you could call it a Mars descender. Uh, da Vinci it studies the chemical composition of Venus's atmosphere um, during a 63 minute long descent. So it has a big parachute and it and it descends over an hour from the 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 uh, cloud tops down to the surface of Venus um, and takes a lot of pictures along the way. Does a lot of a lot of imaging, a lot of radar, a lot of atmospheric samples. It would get the first view of the tesserae, which are a very interesting uh, geological for uh, uh formation on venus that we don't have a lot of information about um and uh and uh theoretically teach us about uh volcanism on venus are there volcanoes active today it's kind of hard to tell how does the surface interact with the atmosphere we get a whole lot more information about the composition of venus and uh, the surface of venus by dropping da vinci and having it spend an hour kind of going down deeper and deeper into the depths of venus it's a cool idea it is a cool idea and finally, we have Lucy, which would perform uh, the first imagery of the Jupiter Trojan asteroids. So these are a uh, a group of asteroids. I believe there are five of them, or they would tour five of them, and they ba- basically orbit the sun along Jupiter's path, but either ahead or behind the planet itself. Right. So these Trojan, kinda... the Trojan points are. Um... It's like uh, for for the Earth, you've got like L four and L five, and it's basically right. like a third of the way on, ahead and behind Jupiter is a, st- a a place of stability where objects in those space kind of can't escape, and so they, they Jupiter has collected these asteroids that follow and precede it a, as it sweeps in its orbit, and uh, we haven't really done any 
uh, as they say, it's the first reconnaissance of the uh, of the Jupiter Trojan asteroids. We haven't looked at them because we're you know focused on things like Jupiter, <laughs> but Jupiter is a very interesting system unto itself, and this is a part of it. So, um, and and again, they they the one of the pitches here is that it's uh, about the history, understanding the history of the solar system by sifting through these uh, these fossils, these relics of uh, earlier times in the solar system, and understanding what they uh, what they can what they can teach us. And it's named after uh, the, uh, the skeleton uh, Lucy, the Australopithic, Australopithecus fossil, because they're, the, the, that's the idea is it's a fossil mission. It's the solar system fossils that they're finding. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that name. Um, and it would carry things um, like the uh, some of the cameras we've seen on other missions. Uh, you would have uh, optical and near infrared imaging as well, as well as thermal. So trying to paint the picture of what these objects look like because these objects could potentially be very very old that got pulled into this this placement long ago and you know again kind of like the the one uh with the asteroid belt whichever one that was i see i've already forgotten the acronyms they don't work uh like the psyche mission trying to understand the early solar system is is so fundamental to a lot of this work to understand yeah. where we came from and how it was formed is, you know, there are a bunch of different vectors into that problem. And here, you know, two of the five do that. Yeah, I mean, we with every, like we saw with uh, with uh, New Horizons at Pluto, and we will see again when it reaches its Kuiper Belt object, the, this is all data, like, there are... We know a lot of things about the solar system, but but in from our position on Earth, and not a lot of it based on getting closer and getting much more detail. And the more detail you get, the more understanding you get about not just what the solar system's like now, but where it started from. And, and when you talk about going to asteroids uh, in the asteroid belt or the, the Jupiter Trojans or going to the Kuiper belt, you really are. I mean, that's why I like that name, too. The Lucy name is like you are doing uh, paleontology, sort of. You're, 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 you're an archaeologist. You are, you are discovering the history of the solar system and where it came from. And, and these are not like um, – these are literally – bits of the old solar system that never kind of went anywhere and so they're there for us to study so it's uh, it's pretty cool especially when we're at the point where we've sent a ship by all the planets right and uh and pluto <laughs> sorry pluto fans uh and <laughs> and uh and there are other things to look at too so it's a it's a cool collection and uh i don't know what would you choose from this list if you if you could just randomly pick based on no more knowledge than what NASA has summarized <laughs> about these missions? Um, I'm really drawn to Veritas learning more about uh, more about Venus and its history. I think that that door in my mind has been opened a little bit by the that recent study. Um, and I think uh, I think NeoCam is important as well, like you said, just for the self preservation angle like it's not the most exciting um not the sexiest mission but i think it's one that is important to humankind and uh, making sure that uh the earth stays nice and safe yeah i don't know what i would choose i i think i i would tilt maybe toward well one of the venus missions maybe da vinci um that one excites me although veritas seems pretty cool too and then one of the uh one of the asteroid missions uh lucy or psyche but uh, neocam uh, I can't argue. It would be really nice that that's a, a an aspect of space that we should probably do a much better job of studying, not just for our own uh, interests, but also because uh, it's it's 
something we should look at more carefully. And this would be 10 times more understanding of those objects than we've discovered to date, which seems to me like it's an underserved area. So it's a tough decision. Um, I imagine that it's not just what do we want to do, but it's a lot of details of what is this cost and when can it be done. And and if you're a NASA administrator, I think that's a lot of what you're looking at is is that, right? It's not just pie in the sky. This would be a <laughs> right. fun mission to have. It's like, yeah, I think this mu- I think this is too expensive for us. And this one is for the science we get. And this one is cheaper. And we get a lot of science from that. And uh, it's in our budget because I know that the, with the Discovery missions, there are budget issues, too. So I don't know. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it, though, and we'll, uh, as always, we'll keep uh, the Liftoff listeners informed. If you want to see links for all this stuff, you can do it in your podcast app of choice, or you can go to our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 27. There in the sidebar, you can see a couple of things. You can see our Tumblr. Uh, Jason's been busy on it this week, liftoffpodcast.space. You can send us an email, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at J Snell, and I am at ISMH. Until next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.